Welcome to this week's podcast from Suncoast Church. We hope that this message inspires you and helps you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. We hope you enjoy this message. But it's amazing, right, how often we'll experience something or an event might happen and it helps you appreciate what you do have. Amazing how at times things we, we you know, in our heart of hearts we're grateful for, and, but we really don't give it too much of a second thought. Um, one of my mates yesterday, who's a pastor in Cairns, um, told me he was chatting to a guy in his church who's from, uh, apologize, I don't know exactly what nation he's from, but from the continent of Africa, and who's saying he could not believe that um, Aussies were out having snags and barbecues on, on election day. He says in the country he's from, he says no one goes on the streets for weeks leading up to the election and weeks after the election because of how violent it is and how, how, how risky and the, the turmoil have it just with an election. And he, go, and he said to my mate, his, my mate's name is Luke, and he said to Luke, he goes, you don't appreciate what you've got. And Luke goes, you're right, I don't. And so it's remarkable how sometimes something can happen that causes you to reappreciate what you've got. For me, that happened in a significant way in the past week. Um, I just got back with a couple of our team from the United States, and their coffee, and if you're American here, I'm so sorry, but your coffee is satanic. I, I, just, I just don't know. I don't know. I don't understand it. And so it helped me, it helped me to appreciate it. I really went there, didn't I? If they couldn't make a... People are, people are angelic, but... So, so it made me appreciate the sweet nectar of the gods that we have in Australia here with our coffee. Now, as much as that's true on you know trivial matters, it's also true on serious matters. How often things happen and cause you causes you to appreciate what you've got. And a few weeks ago, when we had uh, Anzac Anzac Day in Australia, took our, we took our little girl down. She's who's two to the march there, and she was like, "What's this?" Because she's seen all the people march. And to the best of our ability and the best of her ability, we tried to explain. You know, these are a thanking and celebrating people who, who went to really dangerous places and did really dangerous things, and some of them died so that we could know a nation where we can vote freely, right? Like, we have these kinds of freedoms. And looking at it through the eyes now of my first child, it made me again appreciate what we got and something, excuse me, something that we have. And, and, and you know, looking at something like what we, we celebrate or remember at Anzac time, we, we recognize that events or sacrifices that took place decades ago still have effect in our lifetime today. And it's remarkable to me how we can look back and remember things that have happened and, and identify how if it wasn't for what happened, how different our life could be today. And maybe for you, if you look back in your past or a family member who has done something for you or who has given something to you, maybe for you, you look back at the, the life your parents sacrificed. Maybe for you, you come from immigrant parents and you realize what they left behind and what they sacrificed and gave you a life that you get to appreciate today. Maybe for some of you, you look at sacrifices um, relatives, even generations back have made. And we, we do that. We recognize things that have happened and yet we still live today with the fruit or the results, whether good or bad, of something that had happened. And over the past few weeks, we've been looking about what happened with following the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, and we looked at how the church was birthed from there and the, and the heart that Jesus had to see his followers represent his ethic and his worldview and his love to humanity and to keep that following along. But what we want to do now for the next few weeks is kind of change gears, as Chloe said a little bit. And as much as we're still going to draw on an illustration and inspiration from the early church and the first followers of Jesus, we want to ask the question, based on what happened there and, and what happened back then, not only with Jesus' life, but his first followers' life, Here's my question. What difference does it make now? Does it make any difference? And we talk about it and we celebrate and we sing about Jesus and his sacrifice and his life and we draw inspiration from those who saw him resurrected. 
it's worth asking the question, what difference does this whole message and this whole story and this whole reality, what difference does it make now? And even more pertinent, what difference does it make to your life? Should it? And what kind of difference? And is it making the kind of difference in your life today that it should be? Or that Jesus anticipated and prayed for and hoped that it would make? Because there's no doubt about it. As you look through history and as you particularly look, and we've been looking through uh, the New Testament book of Acts, which kind of records the Acts of the early church and the Acts of the apostles. So it's pretty much like an account. It documents what took place after the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus and how the church was birthed. When we look at that, it was unmistakable that the people who witnessed Jesus' resurrection and those who then put their trust in Jesus, things just didn't change. They changed. Their lives were turned on their heads. There was radical life change that took place. And this was why the message spread. It wasn't because there was promise of better things and better government and more finances and more health. That wasn't the promise. The promise was you would be different, that you would change, that your life, who you are as a person, would be radically turned around because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we see all the stories that are documented in Acts explain this over and over again. And what's amazing is as this message spread, and as people's lives were changed, and as the church grew, and as the world began to change, almost like in equal measure, so did persecution against followers of Jesus. And as the followers of Jesus increased, so did the rhetoric against them, and so did the political persecution against them, and so did the cultural backlash against them. And so as much as we see this incredible story of courage and boldness and life change that grew, so did we see the balance of power that was shifting cause a violent response against the followers of Jesus. And the reason, if I could kind of give one overarching reason, is because, as I said, the, the, the power tables were turning. People who had certain um, vested interests in keeping the world as it was didn't like the fact the world was changing. Didn't like the fact that people weren't buying their little shrines anymore or their temples, any, going to their temples anymore or buying their idols anymore. They didn't like the fact that they weren't revering Caesar as a deity or as God. People didn't like that the balance of power was shifting. And so as the church grew and as people's lives have been changed for the better, there was this huge pushback and backlash. And you read this from the very beginning of the story. And what I want to do today is pick up where this started, where this began, where this tension began. The um, so Jesus just been resurrected, ascended to heaven. His followers were now um, um, preaching and loving people. They started to see miracles happening. They were pretty much just carrying on what Jesus began. And so we pick up a story here just after Peter and John, two of the, 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 the first disciples of Jesus, were arrested for healing a man. Go figure, okay? Because the people, they didn't like it because their power was being threatened. They couldn't find any reason to keep them in jail. And after they threatened them and after the, they tried to instill fear into them and kept them in jail, they eventually had to let them go because they're like, well, what, what can we do? The people are for them. They're not for us anymore. And so we pick up the story here after Peter and John were released from prison. They get back together with all the Christians and they prayed a prayer. And here's what they prayed. This is in Acts chapter 4. It says, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Here's what's remarkable to me. If I was in their situation and the powers that be were against this new worldview, this new belief, this new faith, 
People were being thrown into prison. People were being beheaded for their faith. People were being assaulted and losing their businesses for their faith. Families were being at tension because of it. My prayer would have gone something like this. Dear Heavenly Father, you who created all the heavens and the earth, can you please smite my enemies? Can you please uproot the powers that be right now? Those who are looking upon me with threats, take the teeth out of their mouth. Remove the hands from their arms. Do whatever you got to do to keep me safe, to remove them from power. Make the world lean in my favor. I pray this in the name of your servant, Jesus, who's the Prince of Peace. Amen. Right? It'll be something like that. They didn't pray that. They prayed for one thing. They prayed for boldness. They didn't pray for those people to be different. They prayed that they would be different. They prayed that something would change in them. They didn't pray for revival. They prayed for boldness. And what happened was remarkable. They got what they prayed for. Their lives were filled with the Holy Spirit. They prayed for God to do something, in them. not for them, but in them. And this is, this is so important for us to understand what difference faith in Jesus makes now in our life. Because it would be amiss of us to always measure and judge and critique whether God is for you by the things that are happening to you in life. Now, I'm not saying that God isn't interested in what is ha- He's happening to you. He 100% is interested in what is happening to you, and He is for you in every way. But what we know straight off as an absolute is that God is interested in, first and foremost, what is happening in you. The reason we know that is because we see it right here from the beginning. The first followers of Jesus, those that walked with Him, knew that Jesus' priority wasn't that the temple rulership and Israel would be uprooted or that the Rome would be overthrown. Jesus didn't seem, He seemed to be kind of indifferent to that. What He did care about is what was happening in the heart of people, in the heart of His followers. So His followers just copied that. They said, instead of praying for the powers that be to change, we pray for the power in me to change. Something changed in Him. And this is the promise and this is what difference and this is this is what the next few weeks are going to be about what happens now is that putting your trust in Jesus the person or the things that changes more than anything else is you it changes me things don't always change and we know that things don't go the way we always hope we know that you don't need me to tell you that you don't even need God in the equation to know that good things happen bad things happen things go according to plan things don't go according to plan we we all know that but but there's the incredible promise in knowing Jesus that the person that can change and the person that can be healed and the person that can know growth and maturity and fruitfulness and peace and hope, the person staring at you in the mirror. So here's the promise of putting your trust in Jesus is that you would receive the gift of his Holy Spirit. And what changed next wasn't that God d- simply dwelt now in a synagogue or a temple or in a tent or a tabernacle. God said, the game has changed now. I'm now going to dwell in you. Your life would now be the temple within God. Think about that for a moment. Now, if, if you're someone who's not, you know, used to church speak or never, used to, you're sitting here right now going, what the heck does that mean? Yeah, it's, it's full on. And this is what Jesus promised. He said, you put your trust in me, you are going to know a power that's greater than any other power you've ever known. And it's not going to be a, ta- a power that you're going to wield like a sword and wield with violence and wield with money and change the powers that be. It's going to be a power that will change you. And the first followers of Jesus got this. They prayed that God would do something inside of their life. And what's remarkable here, as a flow on from this, and what happened because of the change that happened in them is, is not, it seems subtle, but it's not. It changed, it changed, it changed the world. It's that from this moment, as their lives were filled with the Spirit of Jesus Christ and God started changing who they were, things took on lesser value and people took on greater value. This was a massive shift, right? This was a massive change. That for the followers of Jesus, possessions and materials and things and finance, it wasn't that they weren't important. They just took on a, a lesser value now. They kind of got put in their right place. And people in their view now took on a higher place. And you can, I can't downplay how significantly radical this was for, for the first century followers of Jesus because 
because we now sit here in, in the enlightened West, in the enlightened, you know, new era of, of, of how we view the world and human rights. There were no human rights when this started. It was the followers of Jesus who first realized this and things, money, possessions, power, influence, that kind of went down the runs of what was important and people now took on, uh, took on new value and people were now the most important thing to the followers of Jesus. And so what I want to read after this prayer, something happened. And I hope this scares you because I've been reading this now for years and the more I read what happened next, it freaks me out and I hope it does the same for you too. This is the very next verse after they prayed that prayer. It says, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, right? That was their message. God's grace was so powerfully at work. Where? In them. <laughs> Amen. Was that my daughter? Good job, Willa. Pass this kid. Pray for her. But seriously. <laughs> God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. They didn't vote for a particular party that promised them things for free. It didn't matter who was in power. Because something had changed in this ragtag group of Jesus followers. It was so remarkable that there was no needy person. Notice what it was. It, this was the evidence of God's grace being amongst them. It wasn't how great their music was where they gathered in a church building because they weren't there. And like Sundays kind of wasn't the day. That wasn't even a thing. It was like it was just they were the church. They didn't go to church or attend church or sit in church. They were the church. And it was so remarkable. God's grace was so evident that there were no needy persons amongst them. It goes on. As from time to time, those who, this is, this is what's scary, right? Those who owned land or houses, sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. So this is like, this is remarkable, right? Because think about it, with, with all the pressures and all the tension against followers of Jesus and everything that was taking place and what it meant to be a follower of Jesus, within the community now, here's the difference that was taking place, is that people looked at what they had and they realized the things I have aren't most important to me. It's the people around me that is what is most important to me. Their lives were changed so remarkably internally that it affected how they engaged with the world around them. Things no longer weren't the thing. People were the thing. And they could no longer look at people in need or look at people without or look at people who were destitute while they had much and go, how can I keep hoarding for myself when there are people around me who have far less than me? Things took on a lesser value people took on a greater value. Now, it's not saying that this became a law or a rule because not everyone owned lands and not everyone owned houses and no one preached that you should sell everything, you've got to do it. But there was something about what took place here that they were gripped by radical generosity. And this isn't the only part in Acts that it records it. There's several different occasions where it records these in, in different varying times when the need arose. People stepped up because they were gripped by radical generosity. And in fact, this was so radical that it's the single distinguishing factor that set apart Christians from all other people who lived in the region at the time. Because they weren't caught up with this fear of possession and fear of not having enough. They were caught up in this idea of being radically generous with what they had because things took on lesser value and people took on greater value. And this became not only the distinguishing factor of how they lived, it also became the distinguishing factor of their faith. And you can, we cannot downplay how significant of a turn of the tide this was. Because where previously this whole idea of faith, whether it's the Jewish faith or all the others, the pantheon of faith that existed particularly in the Roman Empire, and this idea of doing things for God, of this kind of vertical arrangement. And so my morality and my generosity was kind of this, it's, it's, it's to God and it's for God. 
But then followers of Jesus, they realized the game had now changed forever. And obviously we explored that in the past week, so I don't need to revisit it. But the change was this. It was a change from a vertical morality to a horizontal morality. That it was no longer the things that I did for God. It was the things that I now do because of God. Because my life has been so radically transformed, I can't help but to see the world in a radically different light. And it causes me to be radically generous with what I've got. And so as Christians, right, we don't have a noose around our neck saying, do this for God, do this for God. We do things that we do because of God, because we've been loved, because our lives have been changed. This first radically hit my life when I was um, in Bible college out of four places. I've been about 18 years of age at the time. And I remember chatting to an old Baptist minister. And I'll never forget the moment because, I was, you know, I was, I was, it's funny when people, it's classic first year student of anything. Once you've studied something for one year, you think you're a pro, right? Think you know, you've been introduced all big new words. And so you think no one understands what you know. That's me anyways. And so I was like, I really wanted to get, you know, deeper in theology and deeper understanding of God. I wanted to go real deep. I wanted the meat of the word. I wanted the meat of scripture. And no one was a deep enough preacher. And no one was meaty enough. And all the churches are shallow. And, you know, things are going to get deeper in media. So I was like, I know who I'm going to talk to, a Baptist preacher. They'll teach me something about meaty preaching. Anyone from, okay, anyways. Too real, right? That's why no one laughs. I know, she's right. So, hey, so I went and met this guy and I was talking to him about it. And he sat back drinking his cup of Earl Grey. And he said, I know, you really want the meat? Yeah, I want meat. Lean forward. I know, meat is on the street. The meat is on the street. If you're really looking to go to the depths of spirituality and the depths of knowing God, you can jump into a book and that's awesome and read all you want and go into as many services as you want. But he goes, we learn anything from Jesus' example. Heck, if we learn anything from the apostles' example, meat always found on the street. Meaning, if you want to go deeper in the things of God, go further into the world, love more, give more, serve more. No one says amen to that because like, well, much easier if I just sing the song, get up and have my quiet time in the morning, whenever it is, even in between Netflix, I don't know how you do it. But Real talk alert, meat is on the street. And for followers of Jesus, it changed everything. Because God, God understand, remember this, they were filled with something, they were filled with the Holy Spirit in them now. They didn't no longer have to go to the temple or the synagogue to meet with God. I was in them, I was inside of them. He says, you now, I of hope. If you're looking for your faith to get deeper, go out there. Begin to love. And so the streets of Rome were filled with Christian meat. I didn't plan to say that. I'm not going to say anything about it. That sounds weird. But meaning this, they began to love the world. They began to take this radical faith they had, and it was outworked through radical generosity. And where it began with this kind of what I do for God, it's now how can I do this because of God? How can I begin to love the world? And in a, in a, in a Roman empire that was gripped with violence, power, might with inequality you know women were demeaned children were demeaned the disabled were demeaned like the the, the power balance was completely out of skew followers of jesus ran boldly into the mess began love the world and they taught the world how to be human and how to see human it was a new way of doing life a new way of existing jesus showed the world how to really be human fully alive fully awake fully alert Things should never be the most important thing in your life. People are. He taught the world a new way to be human and a new way to see human. But as much as it filled the streets of Rome 2,000 years ago, my prayer, my hope, my challenge to us is that it would continue to fill the streets of the Sunshine Coast as well. It's our commission, it's our command, it's our challenge that our faith wouldn't be boxed into a private sphere of my private time or my Sunday time or my connect group time, as important and as vital as they are. Your faith would be most overtly seen with how you love your spouse, how you love your kids, how you love your neighbor, even the guy that's annoying and his dog always comes on your lawn every time that you've mowed it, you know, you go, get off his. Anyways, 
That's not how it's done. Because as much as there was as much as there was a new covenant that was in place now because of what Jesus had done, there was also now a new command. There was a new command. And so as I draw as I bring this kind of to a land today, I want to kind of unpack a little bit this new command that kind of came packaged deal with the new covenant that was birthed through Jesus' death and resurrection. Before I do that, the reason we are kind of over these next few weeks talking about what happens now is in four Sundays time, so three weeks three weeks away, we have our annual vision Sunday. And we do this once a year, and, and we unapologetically come together as a church community, and we give generously, we give radically, because we believe so much that this message would be bigger and louder and bolder and go further along the streets of Sunshine Coast than this city has ever known. And I don't just want to read the history books about how the followers of Jesus back then were gripped by radical generosity. I want the books to be written about our generation, that when followers of Jesus in 2019 looked at the world around them, we didn't draw battle lines and say, it's us versus them. Them. We vote them, they vote that, we think this, they vote that. That's not what Jesus encouraged us to do. He said, go and love the world. And so rather than simply looking at the future, I want us to look at now, what the needs are in front of us now, the opportunities we have now to be generous, to give, and to make a difference. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be kind of unpackaging this. And I know many of you give on a, on a regular basis here. This is an opportunity for us to come together on, an, on a, a next level kind of opportunity for us to give towards the opportunities that God has presented for us to make a difference in the world. So stay tuned. Next Sunday, you'll be hearing more about that. That will be on the 9th of June, I think is that Sunday. Okay, so with a new command, with a new covenant came a new command. And so to set the scene here, okay, this is the night, the last night Jesus had on earth. He was with his disciples. They're all sitting around a table together having the last supper. You know, Da Vinci was there. He painted the whole thing. He got it. This is amazing, right? Art joke. Anyway, so as they're there together, Jesus is kind of, it's amazing kind of the conversation that took place and, and he knew what was about to happen and he was dropping hints and he was trying to be as honest and as clear as he could without freaking everyone out too much and the guys around the table just weren't understanding it but Jesus understood the next day as the sun arose he would be sacrificed and he would institute a new covenant the old covenant would be finished would be complete would be accomplished through his death and then with his resurrection it would begin a brand new hope for mankind and so as Jesus is sitting there with them, he's like, okay, guys, everything's about to change tomorrow. And so I want to give you a new command. And so John was sitting in there and John was sitting right next to Jesus. So he heard everything he said and John documents kind of how Jesus lays out a brand new command. And so if we're going to the first bit, so the next slide. So this is him quoting Jesus, right? He said, Jesus says, a new command I give you. Now, reason it's important to understand this, particularly if you're not familiar with you know, scripture or you're not from a church background, it's like, what's the deal with commands? In, in Jesus, in Jewish culture, in Jesus' day and age, Jesus was a Jew. He came to Jewish people. That was kind of his first mission group, people to love and to reach before it kind of extended to everyone. For them, command, the commands that they had in the Jewish Bible, known as the Torah, at set up every single thing about their way of life, not just about how they practiced faith, but also how they did civil life and family life and, and political life and military life and health life. Like it set everything. And so there's roughly about 613 commands that they were kind of devoted to following and to practicing and to interpreting. And it really made the richness of, of Jewish life, particularly in ancient Judaism. And at, when Jesus came along, there was still a temple there as well. So right in Jerusalem, today you can kind of visit the spot and there's remnants of the second temple there, a few stones left. But at this point, the temple hadn't been destroyed. It was kind of 70 years prior to it being destroyed by Rome. But there was still a temple there. Jerusalem was kind of the hotbed of the Jewish 
faith and sacrifice still took place in the temple. And so uh, in, in that environment, understanding all these commands, Jesus was often asked, hey, out of all the commands that are there, what are the greatest commands? And so Jesus would often pontificate on it and explain and give his take on it. This was different. This was Jesus' last kind of chance to teach. And so when kind of everything had been completed, the last thing left to be done was for him to go through with his sacrifice for the sins of mankind. He then says, I'm not kind of rehashing an old command, or I'm not just explaining the commands that were, I'm giving you something new. So every single dude in the room would be like, hey, what, 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 hang on, what? New command? There's already 630. We've got to like follow. You're giving us a new one? What Jesus says here is his way of saying this command is now, it's going to replace all the commands that I'm about to fulfill through my death and accomplish, fulfill, and all the requirements of the old commands and the old law, it's going to be filled in me. So I'm now giving you a taste of what one new command is. You can imagine how much they were leaning in. Like, you only have to remember one. This is so good. I'd be stoked anyway. So this is what he says. New command I give you, love one another. That's heaps simple. Might be heaps simple. And you and I know it's way more demanding. Now, can you only imagine what these guys were thinking as Jesus said this? Because they're probably thinking, well, well, that's like, what do you mean by love? Because that's kind of open for interpretation. As you and I are probably sitting here right now going, oh yeah, this is like, this is open for interpretation. And Jesus interprets what he means by love. And this is, this is so big. And if you've been reading the Bible for any amount of years, you, you already know it's coming. And so it's easy for us. Remember at the start of this message, I talked about how something, sometimes things happen that help us to appreciate something we've already got, already know. This is something over the next few weeks, I want us to reappreciate and be re-ruined by. We sung a song earlier and had the lyrics in it. That part just read me. I hope we get wrecked all over again by this. He said, the new command I give you, love one another. And now he defines what he means by it. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. As I have loved you. As in the example that I have set in your presence, and you've walked with me for several years now, and you've been with me now for over three years, how you have seen me love, not just how you feel and what you think, but what you have seen me do, that's what I mean by love one another. And then he concludes it by saying, this is remarkable, he concludes it by saying this, by this, meaning this is, this is like the definitive pronoun of this, why it exists, right? This cements the whole purpose. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if we love one another. This is it. This was like the kicker. Now, reading this is remarkable. If you would have asked a first century Jew what it looked like to love God, they most likely would have answered or told you, obey God's commands. But now Jesus was instituting a new idea. What did it look like to love God? Jesus suggested a new answer. It was love your neighbor. And this represented a huge shift about what happened next. And again, if you've been here the past few weeks, you'd have heard all about this. There's this huge tension between how faith is practiced. Is it obey God's commands or is it love your neighbor? And Jesus suggested a brand new way of loving God. And what's remarkable about how this outplayed, and, and again, this is a subtlety, but it's so big, and I think we, I know I certainly miss this. And Jesus said, here's the thing. I want you to, I want you to love the world. I want you to love one another. He did not leverage his authority over them as God, and he could have, and he didn't, <laughs> he didn't leverage the fact that he was able to raise people from the dead, and he was able to do, heal people, and in fact, he was about to be resurrected from the dead himself. He didn't leverage that and say, it is written, therefore you must do. What he leveraged was his love. He says, as I have loved you, now I want you to love people the same way. He didn't say, because this is the law now, and because this is the rules, I want you to do it and obey it. He leveraged his love for the men in the room, not his authority over the men in the room. How does Jesus inspire them and inspire us to love the world? He doesn't give us a new law to follow and obey, to hang around our necks, say, do this or you're not a Christian. He leverages his love for you and he leverages his love for me to inspire us to love the world. I know that kind of gave the hint away, but there you go. Jesus' love for you, not his authority over you, is what he leverages us to inspire 
us to love. This is, this is so important. I don't want us to miss this because um, we've, we've kind of labored over like really emphasizing what happened next and the change in dynamic shift between God and humanity. And if you went here two weeks ago when I kind of did a sermon about the Bible says so, I really, really, really would love you to jump on our uh, podcast and have a listen to it. I'm going to be unpackaging it uh, really deeply on Tuesday night at United Night. So if you want a really inside scoop and the stuff that I don't say on Sundays, you're going to absolutely love Tuesday night where we talk about a mission and what's coming up ahead. But here's the thing, here's the thing, and, and I don't want to miss this. And, and, and again, I don't claim to be the authority on this, but this just appears to see, to see how it went. When Jesus instituted the brand new command, the one command, the one ring to rule them all, right? The one command to rule them all, to love your neighbor. It wasn't like the golden rule that we knew in the old command, right? Which was love your neighbor as yourself. This was different. This was like the platinum rule, okay? This is Jesus saying, I'm now leveraging my love for you. I'm not giving it to you as a law or a commandment. What I want you to do is copy my example. I wanna inspire you to love the world through my love for you. Now, I want you to think of this for a moment. How often do we do something? If you're a follower of Jesus here, if you're a person who follows scripture and reads the Bible and you're like, if the Bible says it, I'm gonna do it. Jesus was not propagating this idea that you are to love people because the Bible says so. That was old covenant, right? The, the, the arrangement between the Hebrew people and God was an old covenant thing. You obey the commands, you get God's blessing. But we can sometimes sneakily apply an old promise or an old arrangement into a new covenant. And this is so subtle, right? You can't forget this. We don't, we don't love people because the Bible tells us so. We love people because God loves us so. And there's a radical difference to that, okay? And so instead of, because now, I'm, am I suggesting that we don't follow the Bible and we don't believe, that? of course I'm not suggesting that whatsoever, but let me explain how this happens, okay? The New Testament was written, particularly the epistles. You had the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These were the eyewitness accounts of, of Jesus' life. And then you have the epistles. You had kind of Paul, you had Peter, you had James, you had John and the others. And they wrote down, they documented the events that had happened. And their way, they weren't simply adding to Jesus' command that he'd given. They were simply learning to apply the command that Jesus had given. And we can often, let me say that again. The epistles, the New Testament epistles, they weren't adding to Jesus' command to love one another as he has loved you. They were simply learning to apply that command. So for example, you, and, and I, won't, I won't spend the time doing this today, you can read it in your own leisure time. And I really encourage you actually read it for yourself. When, G, when Paul would write like the husbands and wives, how they love one another, he doesn't leverage, do it because the Bible says to you. He says, do it because that's how you've been loved by God. He says, why be generous? Don't be generous because the Lord tells you to be generous. Be generous because that's how God has treated you. And so you go through the whole New Testament and it's like they are learning how to apply this one command that Jesus instituted. And the command that Jesus instituted, He didn't institute it by saying it's a law. He instituted it by leveraging His own example to the people in the room. And again, I want to go into this in more, I'll go into this a little bit more detail next week and on Tuesday night at United and over the next few weeks. But it's a tension I really want us to wrestle with. In the same way, if you come, um, John, where are you going with this? Let me put it this way. What proves to me or what authenticates to me that you were born? Is your birth certificate? Of course not. The fact that you're sitting here breathing proves to me that you were born. What your birth certificate does is document the fact that you were born. And so for the Christian, how we wrestle with Scripture and how we wrestle with the Bible, and for many of you, you know, you'd call it the, the Word of God. The way we wrestle with it is the reason we follow Jesus isn't because there was a book. And the first followers of Jesus, they didn't have a book to believe in. They had an event, the resurrection of Jesus. That's why we read in Acts, they kept preaching about the resurrection. And in the same way with the changing world and the changing view, particularly of the Bible, don't be spooked out by that. If you're somebody who feels like, oh, the world doesn't see the Bible the same way I do. Of course they don't. They don't follow Jesus like you follow Jesus. So why should they see the Bible the same way you see the Bible? So we don't begin our witness to the world and our example to the world by quoting scripture at them. 
we be a witness to the world by exemplifying the love of Jesus to them. <laughs> Jesus' followers aren't instructed to obey in order to get something from God. We obey in light of what we've already been given. <laughs> so when Jesus looked around these men in the room, they're all sitting there. There was 11 at this stage. One of them had ran off. When he said, hey guys, here's my new command. I want you to love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. What do you think they thought of when Jesus said that? What do you think of when Jesus said that? Maybe he jumped straight to the fact that Jesus died for them. And he did, but at that point, Jesus hadn't died for them. So when Jesus says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. For Matthew, sitting in the room, would have gone something like this. Jesus, if it was just personal with Matthew, would go, hey, Matthew, remember when we first met? You were a traitor to your own people. You'd taken up the profession of a tax collector. You were embarrassment to your family. You were a traitor to your culture. People threw racist slurs at you. You're an outsider. You ripped people off and you're a thief. How did I treat you when I met you? I invited you in. I loved you like a brother. I didn't hold your sins against you. I embraced you and offered you a second chance at redemption. Turn to Nathaniel. Is that Nathaniel? Do you remember how I loved you when we first met? Do you remember the conversation we had? I remember it really well. You dissed my family. You said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Man, you took the biggest swipe and my, my culture, my hometown, my family, all, all my friends that I grew up with. Man, you full on insulted us. But what did I do when I met you? I valued you. I loved you. I embraced you. I invited you into my circle. Hey, Simon, you know how you've been living in the shadows as like a terrorist, violent zealot against the Roman Empire that you can't show your face anywhere. You're always hiding out. What did I do when I spotted you out in the crowd? I called you in. I brought you into the light. I offered you a life that didn't evolve around violence. And I wasn't scared of you. I said, come on in. For every man in the room around, around that table, they would have interpreted that personally, going, how did Jesus love me? Because that's how Jesus said, I want you to love the world. In other words, Jesus was saying, and guys, you haven't even seen nothing yet. Wait until about 12 hours now. I'm about to blow your minds with how much I love you. So here's my challenge I want to leave you and I with today. Imagine a world where people were skeptical of what we believed, but envious of how we treated one another. Imagine a world that was skeptical. People kind of looked at the Christian belief and like, I'm not sure about how you guys believe in a resurrected guy. And But geez, I'm, I wish I was part of your community. Geez, you've loved me even though I'm an outsider. You've accepted me and embraced me and invited me in. Imagine a world, imagine a church that lived and loved in such a way where people were skeptical of what we believe, but envious of how we treated one another. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you love, you love us as you find us. And my prayer today for us all is that we would be wrecked again by this love. So much so that it wouldn't just stop at the end of the chorus, the end of the service, the end of our group, but we would live this out, that we would learn to love one another in the same way that you have loved us. And I particularly pray this morning, God, for those people here that have never known this love in the first place. Today, Holy Spirit, you would fill their life. That they would know for the first time just how much they are loved by you, how much they are valued and how they are precious. And I pray this in the name. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you were encouraged by what you heard and inspired to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. Hope you can join us again on the next podcast or here at Suncoast Church.